only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. A reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 24. If you'd like to follow along with me in the blue book, uh, blue Bible, it's on page 946. I'm sorry, 947. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, fail, will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourish, nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, and even they if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what, or you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Lord, we pray, open up our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your word, that we may trust in your loving kindness, which is as high as the heavens, from everlasting to everlasting. Oh, bless us, Lord, by your grace. Amen. 
a little bit of background of what Paul's dealing with here as he addresses Gentiles in particular in this section. You can imagine up till the time of Christ what the position of Gentiles was in regard to the Jews. Now, there were a lot of Gentiles attached to the synagogues that were scattered around the empire, and Gentiles would come to Jerusalem as well during feasts and other times. But the Gentiles knew that they were on the outside. They were kept at arm's length uh, as long as they remained Gentiles. Uh, They knew that they were, in a sense, last in line. Uh, They were secondary, not primary. Uh, Kind of like an auditorium filled with people, but they were on the outside listening to speakers, you know, or they were in the overflow room. Uh, Like the royal wedding, they weren't inside. They were outside listening, so to speak. And even the setup at the temple clearly enunciated this because you had the temple itself. There was the priest's court and the Israelite court. And then outside of that was the women's court. And then outside of this whole enclosure was this big wide thing called the Gentile court where the selling of the sacrifices was and the like when we read in the New Testament. But see, they were definitely on the outside looking in. And no Gentile could come in even to the women's court at all because they were Gentiles. And so you'd think they wouldn't hang around at all. Why would you even be there when you're being pushed out like that? And yet, Judaism had attracted Gentiles in fairly large numbers because of the ethics of Judaism, because of the... uh, historicity of Judaism. It was rooted in things that really happened. This was unique. And as well, especially the God of Judaism. This one God who claimed to be sovereign over all things that began the world, continues the world, will end the world uh, within his providence. And not only that he's sovereign over all things, but this God is a merciful God. Well, there wasn't a God like this. I mean, this was wholly unique to have this sovereign, merciful God. And so the Gentiles were attracted to this, even on the outside, even, you know, at the edges, so to speak, pushed to the edges. They were allowed to attend synagogue. They were allowed to have this relationship to the synagogue. Uh, and, and they were there. And so when Paul came around preaching the gospel, it was those Gentiles regularly that responded so strongly to that gospel message. And the Jews, by and large, as a group, that rejected that gospel message. Now, the tendency then on the part of these Gentiles, and Paul is addressing this in this section, is that now they are the end. You know, Judaism is now passé. You, it, it's not so sharp to be a Jew. It's really sharp to be a Gentile. In fact, all those Jewish, uh, those Jewish particulars are not valued anymore. And so suddenly, some Gentiles begin to think, you know, we were down here and now, look where we are now. Uh-huh. So, circumcision isn't a big deal now. Oh, sacrifices don't mean anything now. Now, that was an evil reaction, of course, to what extent Gentiles had this reaction. But in all of these, hearing this, that you are the temple, 
It's not the temple in Jerusalem. You're the temple. Your bodies are a temple. You were brought near to God. And it appears in the following chapters, 14 and 15, when Paul is dealing with the weaker brother, he may be dealing with those that had Jewish, uh, tend- the, the, uh, still Jewish scruples, you know, worried about certain things that the Gentiles realized, you don't have to worry about that. And, and then on top of this, in Rome, the Jews had been exiled uh, cast out of Rome due to persecution, and now we're coming back. But you can imagine they're the ones who haven't been there, and now they're being attached, and they're not on the in crowd. So all of this co- uh, is brought to bear in this passage to, to speak against the tendency on the part of Gentiles, ironically, to have the same attitude that the Jews had before. To beware of the very same sense, sense of primacy, the very same sense of importance and desert that the Jews themselves had that caused them to reject Christ altogether. And so Paul is going after this, showing the continuing importance of Israel to the Gentile cause. And we'll see the interplay between the benefits to Jews that flow to Gentiles and the benefits of Gentiles that flow to Jews. And this interplay ends in verses 33 and following. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How he has worked among Jew and Gentile to bring about salvation and to bring about this interplay of benefit one to the other. We ourselves, sad to say, are probably almost oblivious to that. We don't really think about it. We don't think enough about how we are rooted in Abraham's faith. And if it weren't for the promise to Abraham, we wouldn't be here. And so this is for us a rehearsal of our spiritual heritage and also to underscore that we are only here because of the kindness of God and we only stand by faith and that we must never presume that we are something because of the privileges that we have received by the grace of God. So uh, you'll, you'll notice on page uh, 12 of your bulletin just a simple outline that we have this morning, uh, verses 11 through 16. And really, the beginning of this, you could, uh, you could have kind of a shout-out to the Gentiles. Hey, Gentiles, first, hope for Israel's conversion. And hey, Gentiles, secondly, don't boast in your own conversion. Okay? It's a, a fairly simple outline. Hope for Israel's conversion and don't boast in your own conversion. Now, there's some interplay with this, as we'll see toward the end, uh, the end of uh, the second section as it kind of comes back to that hope again. But first of all, hoping for the conversion of Israel. He asks this question to begin the section as he asks a similar question to begin the chapter. And he answers in the same way, by no means. You can see that in verse 1, by no means. So this is one of the indications of a, a new section here. But he says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? The kind of idea of being down and out, like a boxer in the fifth round gets knocked down. And the question is, is he going to get up again? Is this the end of the fight or is he going to get up and is it going to go 12 rounds? And Paul is saying to us, no, they're not out. 
the fight is not over. Uh, there are many rounds to go in terms of the uh, Israelites. The match is still on. God has not pushed Israel aside, which is part of the Gentile boasting. He's done with you. Y'all, you had your day. Now it's us. And you're the ones that are going to hang on as we're on for the ride. We don't really need you anymore. You're not important anymore. We're even the idea we have replaced, the Gentiles have replaced the Jews. And probably some of us have felt that same way. It was the Jews, now it's us. And he's saying, no, that is not the case. No way that is the case. And he shows uh, three things in this first uh, section that fight against it. First of all, is that their rejection, even in the rejection of Israel, even in the trespass of Israel, of rejecting God and His salvation in Christ, still Israel was the instrument for good to to, to the Gentiles. So we are dependent upon Israel even when she sins. Even when she rejects God, still she becomes the instrument by God's providence and his work to bring salvation to us. You see that in verse 11 and then later uh, in verse uh, 13 and uh, in verse 15 as well. So he says, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Again, in verse 12, their trespass means riches for the world and riches for the Gentiles. Failure means defeat, spiritual defeat. In in their rejection of God, it was the casting down of themselves. They ruined themselves in rejecting Jesus Christ. But still, this was riches for the world. But it didn't bypass Israel. Even in God's providence, he used what they did in their rejection of Jesus Christ, both to accomplish the very work of Christ on the cross, his death, even at the hands of Israel, as Peter says, God accomplished his purpose in Christ's suffering. And then as we see repeatedly in Acts, when the Jews continued to reject the gospel, all the more strongly did Paul turn to the Gentiles. So in their rejecting of the gospel, as you'll read this particularly in Acts 13, but other places, he says, now we're turning to the Gentiles. The indication being that there would have been a more mutual Ministry or more ministry to the Jews, but now in their rejection, the Gentiles all the more receive this ministry. So first of all, he says that in their rejection, there has been riches to the Gentiles. Secondly, he points out that this ministry to the Gentiles has as part of its reference to make Israel jealous. And that should humble you Gentiles. Yes, your salvation is the glory uh, of God being accomplished. And Paul even says this uh, of uh, of the Thessalonians and the Philippians, that you're my joy, you're my crown. In the day of of, uh, judgment, in the day when Christ comes, you will be my joy and crown. A remarkable statement to, to, to make about those who had been saved through his ministry. 
And he underscores that here. He says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. But one of the ways I magnify my ministry, and this is the word to glorify, and he means here that I magnify my ministry by giving myself relentlessly and completely to this ministry. And one of the reasons I do it is to make my fellow Jews jealous so that some of them might be saved. Is God done with the Jews? Do we just push them aside? He says, look, Gentiles, you've got to realize, yes, you're my joy and crown, but another part of my joy and crown is the hope that the Jews even yet would respond to what is being done in your life. And so, yes, it doesn't take anything away from the joy I have in you coming to Christ, but you have to understand, even there, part of that purpose is still to bring those Jews to Christ. That should humble you. It should always give you an orientation. Is this happening? Are we manifesting this to the the Jews? Which we'll touch on in the end. But then finally, he contemplates this. If their rejection, if their trespass and, and defeat brought riches for the world, what will happen when they are brought in greater numbers. We're not quite sure what this fullness means, but it seems to indicate even what the ESV says, what will their full inclusion be? When it's not just a remnant, but the gospel breaks out in a greater way among those Jews, perhaps because of the ministry and grace shown among the Gentiles that flows back to to the Jews and then they respond. He says, well, what will that be? You can see it's kind of from the smaller to the greater, from the greater to the smaller. If even when they rejected God used it, what would their acceptance be? And that's what he says there in verse 15. And he says, if their rejection means reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, some have taken this phrase, life from the dead, to be the final resurrection What will it be but the final impetus to bring about the resurrection in the final day? I don't agree with that. I think uh, one commentator pointed out that this phrase, of the dead, was used uh, some 40-plus times to indicate resurrection. However, as I looked at all 40 of those, 40-plus, they always had the term raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. So it's absent from this. And every time Paul talks about the resurrection or the resurrection of Christ, he uses that word. He doesn't use it here. Uh, The closest thing we have in Romans is chapter 6, verse 13, when he says, Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Same word, uh, live from the dead, a different form, but it's the same basic idea. You also have in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2 where it says God made us alive who were dead. So this is regular terminology for being spiritually made alive. He's probably using it in a figurative sense to say in a huge way, it'll be, as one commentator said, it'll be like Easter everywhere if there's acceptance from the Jews. It'll be a resurrection from the dead, which means something far more than even the reconciliation of the world that has occurred 
or the effect of that reconciliation in the world. It seems that Paul is contemplating this all the more to call Gentiles to be humble to say, look, your salvation and the outpouring of that salvation is tied in some way to the response of Jews to the gospel. So don't think that God is done with the Jew. And rather, you hope, you hope for their salvation. You hope for their conversion. You hope for this great work among them. And you see your place that you're to be the ones to make them jealous to that end. We'll talk about some of the practical concerns there. So, the first point then, hope for Israel's conversion. Now, the bridge into the next section is verse uh, 16. And he, he, he's reinforcing in the first part this idea that if the dough offered as first fruits, that would be taken as the uh, believers now, the Jewish believers that are already in Christ. If they have been already offered to God, Paul says it's like the offering of the first fruits where the whole offering is made holy. And so this first offering of Jewish Christians means that there will be an offering of the whole at some point, you see. So if the first fruits, these first Jewish Christians have been offered to God, that's a sign that there's going to be something on a larger scale for the whole Jewish nation. And then he goes to a, an historical argument in the second half, and almost all commentators would agree, uh, speaking of the root and the branches, which he then follows on in the verses 17 and following, the root would be the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and saying that if God is committed to the root and has set apart the patriarchs as his, he is not done with the branches yet. The branches still have a connection, still have a relationship to that root, to God's covenant with his people. And that's important for us to understand uh, this, this connection with the spiritual uh, richness of God's covenant. We'll talk about that as we get into this next section. But you see how the first part of verse 16 kind of summarizes uh, why we can expect greater work among the Jews. And the second part also tells us why we should expect a greater work for the Jews. And it introduces us to this idea of the root and branches, beginning with verse 17. So now... More directly, he talks about the potential arrogancy or arrogance of the uh, Gentiles. Though, of course, the first part uh, fights against this as well. And in this second part, there are several things that he says to underscore why you should not be arrogant. He says, of course, you're grafted in now. Uh, and you're among the others, that is, among the other believing Jews. Now you Gentiles are grafted in with other believing Jews. Now, you'll notice, as we've said before, that God doesn't scrap the Old Testament or Old Covenant people, push them aside, and start over with a new people. We're going to plant a new tree now. We, we did with this tree. This tree is old and dead. We're just going to dig it up, throw it aside. We're done with that, okay? Not at all. This tree's still there. The root's still good. There's still life in the tree. In fact, the only way 
you will have life is that you're grafted into that tree. That's how valuable the relationship that God has to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is to you and me. You can only be grafted in to what were the original promises to Abraham. That's the only thing going in this world. It's the only salvation in this world. It, of course, finally issued in the giving of Jesus Christ. But that is the controlling salvation of history, is what God promised to Abraham. If you go back to Genesis, uh, it's interesting that the first 11 chapters of Genesis form a kind of introduction, or a real introduction to the whole rest of the Bible. So that from really the latter part of Genesis 11 to Revelation 22, you have one story of God through Abraham and his seed saving the world. Now, up to that point, there's a double uh, creation, fall, judgment, and then creation, fall, judgment. The world is recreated with with, uh, the flood. Then there is sin again with the Tower of Babel and judgment in the scattering of the nations. So there's creation, fall, judgment of the flood, rebirth, recreation, judgment, fall. Double, double, okay? So here's the double uh, setting For now, God enters the scene. Right after saying in Babel, they were dispersed to the ends of the earth. And almost the next breath after the genealogy that leads up to Abraham, so that you get this dramatic feel. The nations were scattered, and then God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations through you. That's the feel, okay? That's the feel. And that begins the root. That's the promise of God to do good to all people. That's why Paul can say in Galatians chapter 3 that now the blessing of Abraham has now come to the Gentiles. They have received the Spirit. So this blessing pronounced on Abraham is the root and anyone that believes in Christ is engrafted into that original promise, that root, that covenant commitment to God. He will do good to the nations. He will bring salvation to the earth through the seed of Abraham and he will pour out his spirit upon the nations that have been scattered. But the root is in Abraham. That's the first point that he makes here in verses 17 and following. Verse 18, don't be arrogant toward the branches, either believing Jews or unbelieving Jews. You don't support the root. The root supports you. You're not coming in and saying, hey, we're bringing a whole bunch to the table. We're keeping this thing going. The Jews just kind of ruined everything. Now we're the game in town. We're we're running the show. Oh, You're entirely dependent. You would be nothing except for the root. You've been grafted in. And you're dependent upon the life, the promise of God. Your connection to this Jewish promise. And the one who saved you was a Jew. The original proclaimers of the gospel were Jews. That's what God has used to engraft you into his rich uh, salvation. So that's the the first point he makes here. And then he also makes the point that you stand only by faith. You're saying, hey, branches were broken off, so I might be grafted in. And Paul even says, okay, that's true in a way. But he says they were broken off because of their unbelief. 
And you weren't broken, you weren't put in because you had some merit. Because God says, well, I don't like these branches. They innately are so bad. Let me find some good branches out there. That wasn't the case at all. It was mercy. It was only mercy. You stand only through faith because in your sinfulness, in your deadness, you trusted in the mercy of God. So don't be proud. Tremble. That's the idea of fear. Tremble that you shouldn't be here in terms of your own desert. You're not here because you've done anything good. You're here, as we just sang, because God found you and grafted you in. And you are trusting, clinging to his goodness and kindness. And that's the idea of continuing. He says, if you don't continue in what? This is so good in verse 22. You've got to continue in his kindness. Continue to helplessly depend on the kindness of God. Now, if you harden yourself against that kindness, even as the Jews did, then there's going to be severity to you, just like there was severity to the Jews. You're no different. You stand on no different basis than they would stand. It's purely by trusting in the wonderful kindness of God. Otherwise, you're cut off. So, you're dependent on the root. Don't be haughty. Secondly, you stand only by faith. And if you, you're, you're only there because of the kindness of God and you trusting helplessly in that kindness, how can you look over to the Jew and look down your nose? And then finally, he says in verses 23 and 24, and remember, uh, they are, don't, don't look at them and say, oh, you're done with them. Uh, that's it for you. He basically says, look, if he can give you a wild plant a place in the a natural root, he certainly can put the natural branches back. Don't be so haughty. Don't think of yourself in that way. You are the wild plant grafted in. And if he can do that, he certainly can graft the natural back in. And so in these ways, he's dealing with uh, their uh, potential pride, their arrogance toward uh, these Jews. And let me just close with a few applications that we need to draw from this. The first thing is, and this is convicting to me, it may be convicting to you as well. Number one, we must be praying for the salvation of the Jewish people. And let me say, I won't go into this because of time. You can be against Zionism, so to speak. You can even be against physical Israel existing as a nation for political reasons. Uh, Those people have not trusted in Christ. I don't believe that they're constituted there because of their faithfulness to God. They continue to reject God. Many are practical atheists even who hold positions in that country. That's a whole different thing. And, and politically, doesn't mean that we're committed to Israel as a country. It means we're committed to the salvation of Jews that they might come to Jesus Christ. That's what we're committed to. Now, you may agree with them politically in many ways against other uh, political uh, forms of government in that uh, area. That's a different story. I'm simply talking about this. We must pray for the conversion of Jews, which means they're coming to Jesus Christ. 
You see that in Paul chapter 10, verse 1. My heart's desire and pray, prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And we already saw, of course, earlier in chapter 9, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That was his passion. And we should enter into the passion of Paul. We should enter into the prayer that Paul has. Secondly, may God use us and may we prove to be instruments of their jealousy. Okay? Instruments of their jealousy. And of course, the horrific things that Christians have done to Jews or those called Christians have done to Jews would fill volumes. Uh, the hatred that we have borne uh, for Jews in so many respects. But we are called, in fact, in this very passage, if we are tasting of the kindness of God, then we all the more will be showing the kindness of God. Interesting in a passage like Titus chapter 3, when Paul is talking there of speaking evil of no one, avoiding quarreling, being gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? Because we ourselves once were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, same word, kindness, When that kindness appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us, but according to his own mercy. You see, the basis of our kindness toward all people around us and the basis of our kindness toward our Jewish uh, friends is this, that we have been shown kindness in the midst of our sinfulness. And so in humility we would show kindness to them as well. The context of Matthew 5 certainly includes, it may be primarily that of the Jews, where he says, uh, let your light so shine that others may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The primary context was the persecution that they would suffer among the Jews themselves. So even in the persecution there, you're to continue to love and do good so that they might glorify your Father. The same emphasis in 1 Peter 2 and 3, though certainly it included Gentiles, it was directed as well to Jews to say, in that which they slander you as evildoers, continue to do good, continue to manifest love, and you will turn their hearts around. And they'll say, as I said to the kids last week talking about apologetics, they'll say, you know, I thought Christians were so-and-so until I met Bob. He changed my mind. I, I really, I had been around this and this and this kind of person that claimed to be Christ, and I'd just written them off until I met Jill. She changed my mind. That's the idea. It's the idea with everyone. And certainly, if we are to be causing the Jews to be jealous, what they have to see something. They have to see the love of our community. They have to see love pouring out of this community into the world and toward them in particular so that they are attracted and they're drawn to this life that they see among the people of God. And I want to urge you in this 
idea he has here of continuing particularly in the kindness of God. Oh, how... This, again, I use it a lot, but it's like saying, keep eating your bluebell ice cream every day. You know, (laughs) like, oh, do I have to? You know, like continue trusting, acknowledging, enjoying, resting in, rejoicing in the kindness of God. That's what he commands here. Don't harden yourself against that great goodness. Don't harden yourself against this love that flows to you in Christ Jesus. The kindness of God, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, he says, it's the kindness and forbearance that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Interesting. We think of repentance as always fear of wrath, you know, turning from sin, but... It's said in Acts 20.21 that it's repentance toward God. The kindness and mercy of God causes us to turn our back on our former life and our idols and our sin because we see a greater treasure in Him, in His love, in His kindness. We want to entrust our life to that kindness and nothing else compares to that than to taste and know that kindness, to put myself under the hand of this Lord, to obey Him because He is so kind and good. Look, He sacrificed Himself for me. We're told that in eternity, in Ephesians 2, 7, that this is how God's going to glorify His name, by just showing kindness to us forever. And He keeps getting glory and glory and glory. How? Because we keep tasting, we keep being enriched by kindness forever. Israel in the wilderness, of course, turned against that. They refused His goodness and kindness. And and here's a constant exercise for us, connecting the cross to every event in your life. Connecting the goodness of God and giving His Son and not sparing His Son to all the other events in your life. Not to define your life by your circumstance or allow allow it to be defined by the enemy's effort to despair. To paint a picture of God that's not true. But to say, no, I will believe the cross. I will believe what God has shown himself to be through Jesus Christ. And I will attach that meaning to this event. That the God who gave his son is the God who rules in this circumstance. As devastating as it may be. I love the Syrophoenician or Canaanite woman as she's described variously in Matthew 15 and Mark and Luke. But she said... um, she came to Jesus and uh, he wouldn't even listen to her at first. And they're like, would you please get rid of her? She's driving us crazy. She's just going on and on and on. And, and he says, uh, I've not come to any but the lost sheep of Israel. We're all like, is this, is that, is that something happened with the manuscript right there? Was that really Jesus that would say that? And then finally, she she stops him. She falls down right. She, he can't go anywhere. can't ignore her anymore. And she says, my daughter is possessed of a demon. I need you to heal her. And he says, you know, the food's for the children. It's not for the dogs. And you think at that point that she's just like, okay, forget it. You know, I know when I'm not wanted. I know when you don't. And it's as though she said, you know, I know that you are kind And I know that you have an unlimited love and mercy. And I'm banking on that. And I'm not going to move. And she says, 
Even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. And he says, oh, how great is your faith. What did she believe? She believed in the kindness of God. She believed in the kindness of Christ against all circumstance, against everything she was even hearing from him. She believed in that kindness. And so don't bow down to the enemy's interpretation of despair. But you read your circumstances through the gift of God in Jesus Christ. Let His kindness wash you clean. Let His kindness support and sustain you and enrich you. Let His kindness bring about peace and joy in your life in the midst of the worst things. And finally, I just would say a word about don't gain your significance by your accomplishments. Here, he's speaking to Gentiles. Of course, the Jews themselves, uh, instead of finding their significance in mercy and the goodness and kindness of God, finding their significance in their accomplishments, finding their significance in we must be better than others. And how quickly does that happen with kids? You know, you, you're just learning to do something. It could be art or music. It could be... Uh, it could be some sports. It could be fixing something, doing something with your hands. It could be math. And you so quickly, a kid says, oh, you, you can't do that? I can. You, you can't do that problem? Oh, I know how to do that. Just immediately, our significance is gained by the fact that we're better, stronger, accomplish something that somebody else can't. And Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 9, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, the mighty man boast in his might, the rich man boast in his riches, but let him boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. This is what I delight in. You find your significance that I have a relationship with God. I'm forgiven by Him. I have fellowship with Him. And yes, we should seek to do all of our work as best we can do and, and use our gifts to their fullest. And if we find success, it's simply that we've pleased God in that, okay? That's our significance that, Lord, I've dedicated all of this to You. As Paul says in Colossians 3, whatever you do, do everything in the name of Jesus. And if we fail in trying to do our best, then we say, oh, Lord, I, I dedicated this to you and I'm not dependent ultimately on how much I succeeded or how better I was than anybody else. I am, my only meaning is that I've dedicated myself to you. And even if we haven't done our best and we've purposely, lazily been irresponsible, there's forgiveness with him and restoration with him so that our significance is always in him. May God give this to us that we would live a life in that regard of, of true freedom, uh, of, of, of ultimately resting uh, in His kindness. And you don't have to worry about significance, as He says in Romans chapter 2. There will be honor and glory <laughs> that we could never even fabricate or imagine in this world. And He says in First Peter, for Peter does... All of, your, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. God is opposed to the uh, proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves then under His mighty hand. He will exalt you at the proper time. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Count one another as more important than yourselves. 
Humble yourselves to one another. And then you'll have the very mind of Christ who did the same and was exalted. Is your life going to be any different than Jesus? Walk a life of humility. Find your significance in Christ, in your relationship with Him, in your forgiveness that you have with Him. Don't worry about exaltation. That's, that's handled, okay? That's taken care of. You're free to spend yourself lavishly on one another in all humility, tasting His kindness and giving that kindness away to others. Let us pray. O oh Lord, bless us, we pray. Bless us, O Lord, that we might constantly rest in and taste the kindness of Jesus Christ and connect all of our lives to that kindness and find all our significance in that kindness. And, O Lord, bless us that we will realize it is not anything in us, but it is only what God has done for us that separates us from anyone. And therefore, We should pour out our lives for a lost world, including those who are Jewish. Bless us, Lord, that we may be used, the Christian church worldwide, in a way that is is unprecedented in the seeking of, of lost Jews, that they might come to the faith of their Messiah, the one who was first given for them and also for the Gentiles. Oh, Lord, bring it about. And may as a result, there be life from the dead in this world. We pray it for Jesus' glory. Amen. pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?